Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'll be keeping you company for the next hour and we'll be looking at some stories making the news here in Ireland and all around the world. In today's episode, I'll be talking to the BBC, Financial Times and Euronews as we tackle disinformation in the Israeli-Gaza conflict. We'll also assess Italy's far-right government's first year and I'll be discussing the changing landscape of retirement. You can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. Now, Italy's first year under Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney has been more than eventful. It's a year marked by an economy that's grappling with a huge debt problem and a Prime Minister herself struggling with quite a turbulent home life. So to try and get a better understanding of life in Italy now and the challenges that lay ahead for Ms Maloney, I'm joined now by Mark Lowen, who's the BBC News Southern Europe correspondent and he's based in Rome. Mark, you're very welcome to News Talk. Thanks for having me, Mandy. Now, before we get into the year's anniversary, we might take us back a year about when she came into office. What was she promising the Italian people and what kind of government did she form in a coalition? She was promising the Italian people um, a relaunch and and hope of change. She uh, she was she was following a technocrat government, um, and she was saying she was a she was a politician who was really representing the will of the Italian people because they had been governed by successive technocrats for some years, um, as politicians were unable to form stable governments. So she she was really the first um, politically elected. Prime Minister since Silvio Berlusconi um, in in the in the 2010s, um, she actually was the most right wing Prime Minister to be elected since the Second World War, since Benito Mussolini, um, because she has her her party has its roots in fascism, and so there was a lot of fear among her opponents that she was going to suddenly impose a sort of extreme far right politics on Italy. She always denied that, and she denied any links with fascism, um, and. And she has uh, she has formed a right she formed a right wing government a right wing coalition in Italy, and um, she has, as it turns out, proven to be more moderate in many ways than than many had feared. And 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 I think that that is actually, I suppose, in line with expectations. That yes, she she, she is a right winger, but she's no Victor Orban. She's mm. No. She's no hard rightist and she is the leader of a country that is still very firmly rooted to to the European Union. Yeah, because when she came in, there was quite a bit of concern in Europe about what might happen. And I I, I saw a quote the other day from the European president, um, uh, which was quite undiplomatic, but it was a, a warning shot for sure across the bows to say that Europe had the tool to deal with any member, including Italy, if things went in a different or difficult direction. So obviously from the outset, Europe Europe were putting down a firm marker. How has she handled that relationship with Brussels since she's come in? In quite a smart way, I have to say, uh, because she has um, actually led quite a moderate foreign policy. Uh, She has maintained Italy's close links with the US. She's been over to Washington, to the White House. She's got a close relationship with with the president of the US. She has got built quite a good relationship with Ursula von, Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission. Um, she has uh, also built quite a strong relationship with right-wingers in other, in, in other parts of Western Europe, like Rishi Sunak, for example, in London, uh, where, you know, it's 
it's it's it's quite a close political relationship that that has been formed between London and Rome, and yet she has also you know she's winked to the to those on the far right to to Orban etc to the to the outgoing Polish Prime Minister um, by being quite hardline on migration, mm. uh, but but much less so than, than 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 her rhetoric before election. I mean, before she was elected, Mandy, she was talking about how she wanted a, a naval blockade of Libya. Uh, she was talking about just completely stopping all migration. Under her watch in the last year, migrant arrivals have doubled into Italy. They're at more than 140,000 this year. So in a sense, that makes her quite vulnerable because she has not done as she promised. So what she's managed, so what she has done in order to, in a sense, kind of divert attention from that and also to throw some red meat to her right-wing supporters is she has, you know, introduced some other right-wing policies, like, for example, trying to outlaw surrogacy. Um, Italians who go abroad to try to have families through surrogates in the US or in Canada, for example, could, under a law that she's trying to push through, face a a, a fine of up to a million euros and three years in prison. Now, that is something that is supported by the Catholic conservative right. It is a kind of low-hanging fruit measure that she can can bring in to sort of please her right-wing base, while at the same time leading Italy on a foreign policy level in quite a moderate way. And so that is the kind of balancing act that she's managing to to pull off. And, and according to the opinion polls, she is still riding high. She's still by far the most popular party at about 30% in the opinion polls, quite way ahead of the of the opposition. It was so doing quite a good job on an international stage. Um, but domestically, there's obviously issues that uh, she's not doing so well at. I mean, quite extreme policies there. And as you said, one of her things is about traditional family values, which we'll come back to in a, in a moment. But I want to stick with that issue of migration. One of her coalition partners, uh, Matteo Salvini, I think he's he's quite vociferous on that. And could that be something that causes her difficulty, say, next year as we move into the election phase? I think it could be in terms of, uh, you know, as, as as Europe leads up to the European Union elections, um, each party is going to be trying to clamour um, and to try to you know, mobilise its base. Mm. Now, um, she is, has gone into coalition, as you say, with two other right-wing parties, um, Berlusconi's party, or late Berlusconi's party, Forza Italia, and uh, Matteo Salvini's party. Now, Salvini was a former deputy prime minister and an interior minister, and, and he's also a hard right politician, I mean, a a far-right politician. And his party has been really kind of squeezed hugely, and and its popularity is is a a shadow of its former self, because most of his supporters have gone to Meloni. And so I think now what we're seeing is that Salvini will be trying to mobilise his base and to be increasingly vocal, and actually to be probably more right-wing than than Meloni on migration, Mm. saying that, for example, a migration pact that she signed with Tunisia to try to give more money to Tunisia, to, to, to increase patrols there, to stop the migrant boats is not working he's trying to uh, you know he's trying to stand out from the from the right wing crowd on that so i think that you're going to see more of that in the run up to the european union elections but also i think um from other it will be very interesting to see how maloney will 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 emerge as a figurehead of what the what the the right wing can do in europe i mean you've got you know you've got uh, Marine Le Pen in France, you've got Alternative for Deutschland in Germany, you've got these far-right parties that have not got into power, and then you've got a far-rightist in Georgia Maloney who has got into power and got into power in a founding member of the European Union in Italy. So I think that there will be a rallying around, and she will, she is emerging already as, in a sense, kind of 
the European leader of the new right. And I think that that is what is going to certainly increase as we as we lead up to the European Union elections. And that's very interesting. But she has governed in a much more modern way than she campaigned. She has. And, and, and going back to foreign policy, um, one of her key planks has been a vociferous support of Ukraine mm. and an anti-Putin policy. And that is where she differs, of course, from Viktor Orban in Hungary. Um, and, you know, because her party has its roots in Italian fascism, um, part of those roots have always been has always been an opposition to communism has been a, an opposition to to, to, to the Soviet Union uh, initially so so that is why she has always been a staunch supporter of, of, of Ukraine and that has meant that she has managed to be much closer to Brussels to Paris to Berlin on foreign policy issues than for example Viktor Orban um, she's also now for example you know she on, on Israel she's she's very much in support of of, of, of Netanyahu in, in Israel as a pro-israel policy that is very much of defined by the right-wing parties in, 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 in Europe as well. So, you know, on, on foreign policy, she's much more moderate than 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 her, you know, right-wing allies, I suppose, to the east of Italy. Mm. Um, and uh, it is just on domestic policies, on things like migration and on things like, uh, you know, surrogacy and, and, and social, social values, for example, that she is trying to please her far-right supporters. Yeah. Okay, we'll come to that in a second. But if you're just tuning in, folks, I'm speaking to Mark Lowen, who's BBC News Southern Europe correspondent and He's based in Rome and we're talking about the first year of the Italian government under Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney. Um, Mark, the economy in Italy is always something to discuss um, and uh, this is no different. They have a huge debt problem at the moment. You might just talk us through the macro um, economic situation there and in particular I want to talk to you about the windfall tax that she tried to introduce in a Liz Truss type effort. Mm, yeah, she tried to um, introduce a windfall tax on bank bonuses um, over the summer, and that was sort of quite unannounced. It was announced, or it came in a, in a late night news briefing, and in fact by Matteo Salvini, one of the deputy prime ministers, and. Um, it spooked the markets. I mean, bank shares suddenly plunged. Um, investor confidence suddenly plunged. She tried to then row back uh, in the in, in the, de- the days afterwards to say, uh, "Okay, we will we will limit the taxes that we would introduce." Um, but I think that that showed that you know here is somebody who is not desperately experienced in government. And um, she thought, you know, bear in mind, her, her, her predecessor was Mario Draghi, the mm. former president of the European Central Bank, who was an inc- incredibly safe pair of hands on the economy. So, you know, I think that that exposed really the, the, the fact that Italy had gone from this kind of, you know, slightly dull technocrat, but somebody who was extremely competent to, you know, yes, a politician who swept power with, with support, but Basically, is not very experienced politically, or, or, or in terms of in terms of the in terms of the you know finances. And now, um, you know, a year on um, from her election, Italy's economy is beginning to shake again. I mean, it, there is the perennial problem of very high debt. Italy has the second highest debt to GDP ratio in the European Union after Greece, one hundred and forty percent of GDP. Uh, it's come down slightly from 144 when she came into power. And the other perennial problem, Mandy, is just a chronic um, uh, inability to grow in the Italian economy. The Italian economy has not grown for 25 years. And uh, it is not growing again. It, in fact, it's in recession now. There was a, a, a second quarter of this year, it shrank by 0.4%. So, um, 
Uh, Mark, sorry, can I just cut in there? When they were in in a state of growth, what were the industries that were helping them? Like, why are they such a stagnant economy? Well, actually, Italy is um, has got this is the second biggest industrial power in the European Union after Germany, because, it, you know, even though we associate Italy in many ways mm-hmm. with Rome and the south mm-hmm. in the north of Rome and uh, north of Italy, rather Milan, Genoa, Turin, these are economic powerhouses. So, you know, huge um, uh, industrial, huge, huge companies there, um, uh, you know, Fiat, for example, you know, the, the car manufacturer, big shipbuilders, uh, all the, fa- you know, the fashion houses. Um, so, so all of the, you know, that in, 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 in many ways, Italy seems like two countries uh, from north to south. And economically, the north of Italy is part of is, is has got some of the richest parts of the European Union, mm. but the south of Italy has got some of the poorest parts of the European Union, and that is just kind of always been the problem of of, of that country. Um, and it's it's not showing any sign of going away under George Maloney. Mm. We we spoke briefly earlier about the traditional family values um, thing. She's had that's quite a big part of her. Um, domestic pitch, as you say yourself, um, that's where she's leaning into on the right. She's had her own domestic issues playing out publicly recently, hasn't she? Mm, she has. I mean, last week there was a, a social media post um, on that she, that she posted on on X, formerly Twitter, in which she announced she was separating from her partner, who she had been with for almost ten years, and she has a son with, uh, sorry, a daughter with him, a seven year old daughter with him. Now he is a TV presenter. Uh, in on a network that was owned by Silvio Berlusconi, um, who was uh, criticised for kind of dumbing down and bringing in trashy Italian TV. And sure enough, on this network, which is does not exactly exactly exude class, um, her now former partner Andrea Giambruno was. Um, there were a couple of instances. One one show in which he was propositioning, appearing to proposition a female co-presenter and grabbing his crotch repeatedly. And then there were there was another broadcast broadcast that went out on on his channel, uh, which was allegedly off-air comments in which he was boasting about an affair that he was having and inc- and inviting other female members of staff to have a threesome and a foursome with him. Um, yeah, lovely. Well, uh, yeah, and and so and so that seemed to be the last straw for Georgia Maloney, and she dumped him on. I don't know whether she dumped him on social media. Probably, I think she did announce that she that was it was ending. But the, in, in many ways, Mandy, the, the the private lives of of European leaders don't concern us very much as journalists. But in this instance, it does because um, of who Georgia Maloney is mm. and the sort of social values that she is trying to present. She constantly. You know, reiterates that she's a Catholic. She's a mother. She she strongly believes in a, that only a mother and a father, the union of a mother and father, can provide a stable family. And then here comes you know this exposure exposure of the fact that her partner was apparently you know not uh, you know was adulterous and and quite lewd. And um, you know she she's now she's now left him. And so that tends to that seems to kind of put into question not only her emphasis on 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 those social values, but also perhaps her even even her choice of, of partner. Well, may, maybe make her think more about some of the other social issues that she's uh, trying to be so 
what's dogmatic on like the surrogacy issue, you know, in countries like Ireland where we're much more liberal and open to, to different types of structures of families. And um, that could be a big learning for her. But before I let you go, Mark, can I just ask you, like looking on a year from when she was elected, how would you categorise her premiership? Have you been surprised by how moderate she's been? How have you been surprised by her international uh, capacity as a diplomat? Um, yeah. What would you say about her first year? I think, to be frank, um, I'm not surprised that she is more moderate than she appeared um, in, uh, you know, in in the election rallies leading up to her to her election. Um, she was, she seemed like a hard rightist, um, but it was, I think, inevitable that she would tone down in office, uh, partly because Italy is just um, too too core a member of the European Union to sort of drift away from Brussels's orbit, but also because. Economically, Italy just depends on kind of scrutiny from Brussels. It has to submit its budget to to, to Brussels for approval, but also um, it was the biggest recipient of post-COVID recovery funds, some three hundred billion euros, and it needs to toe the line with Brussels to in order to continue to receive that money. Um, and so, on foreign policy, I just kind of I'm not surprised mm. she's, that she's more moderate in terms of the social policies on things like surrogacy. You know, it's. It, it's much more akin to kind of, you know, Poland, Hungary style. But, you know, she's trying to sort of balance both sides, her kind of right-wing supporters and and, and the more you know, pro-EU side as well. Um, I, I, you know, she, she's, she's, sta- she's stable. She is, I think, exceeding expectations from many people. Right. Um, she's still got a lot of critics and a lot of people who hate what she represents. But ultimately, uh, Mandy, bear this in mind, that Italy's had over 60 prime ministers since the Second World War. The average tenure of an Italian government is about 14 months. She is determined to prove that different and she's determined to stay in office for the full five years of her mandate. And at the moment, it, there's no sign that she is going to be toppled early. Well, it's not a very high watermark though, is it, Mark? <laughs> um, but we'll leave it there for now. That was Mark Lowen, BBC News, Southern Europe correspondent based in Rome, talking to us today about Giorgia Maloney's first year in office as Prime Minister of Italy. Mark, thank you very much for joining us today. Very nice to talk to you. You're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk. Coming up after the break, we'll be talking about the fog of war. Three weeks of the Israel-Gaza conflict and misinformation is rife online. Find out how to separate fact from fiction after this short break. And welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. Now we're going to turn to the Israel-Gaza conflict as we've seen awful and horrendous scenes on the ground over the last number of days. And added to that, we also have the question of misinformation and disinformation that is being used by both sides to further their causes and their cases on the international stage. So what we wanted to do today was to look at how we might separate fact from fiction online, especially um, in such an evolving, emotional and constantly developing uh, situation. So to do that, I am joined by Sofia Katzenkova. She is tech and disinformation uh, journalist for Euronews and she's on the line now. Sophia, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, Sophia, this is this is what you do on a day to day basis. You're mining for truth and factual information. But before we get into that, I might just go back a little bit. Propaganda and narrative in war is not a new thing, right? It's been there since war itself was created. I guess the dynamic is different now because of social media and stuff. But 
How would you categorise the importance of the narrative in this particular conflict and war situation? Well, I would say that what's different in the case of the Israel-Hamas war is that in the first couple of days of the conflict, the volume of misinformation and disinformation on the social media platform X, um, formerly known as Twitter, uh, was enormous. And I think a lot of journalists uh, and a lot of um, researchers and fact checkers will agree with me. It's gone a little bit better since the platform recognized all the issues and changed the way uh, the sort of a community notes uh, works. Mm. Um, but still, the you know a, a lot of us are really having trouble keeping up with uh, the amount of just false and misleading information on the platform. And that's it really, isn't it? It's the scale. Um, and as you said, we're bombarded in the first few days. So it's very difficult to find a good source and then hang on to it. But maybe it's worth just stepping back a little bit, if you would, Sophia. This is something you do day in, day out. I know you've covered other wars, the war in Ukraine and obviously um, other um, disasters in, in areas like Turkey and Syria. Um, just just maybe give us the definition of the difference between what is misinformation and disinformation, because it's a it's quite an important distinction. Um, well, disinformation is, you know, false uh, uh, information that is spread uh, with a malicious intent. Mm. I think that's the that's the biggest uh, difference. Whilst uh, misinformation uh, is. Uh, does not have that, uh, you know, nefarious intent behind it in order to dupe uh, online users. Yeah. So let's just stick to the disinformation at the moment, because, look, this is a highly emotive um, and evolving constantly situation. But uh, both sides are highly charged. And can you maybe just talk to us about um, how different um, factions are maybe using social media to propagate, um, you know, falseness, uh, falsehoods um, to, to, to further their case and their cause? So I would say that from um, Israel's side, uh, the way that, um, you know, misinformation has been spread is in a very um, institutionalized uh, manner. Mm. Uh, so, for example, uh, I was reading today a really interesting report by the French uh, newspaper Libération uh, that found that Israel has paid millions uh, of euros to invest in this uh, massive social media campaign, um, you know, spreading misinformation about what's going on on the ground. Whilst I would say from Hamas's side, um, the sort of narratives, the propaganda narratives that are spread are um in a way to sort of demoralize and also to scare mm. um, the Israeli population. Mm. Uh, and I think uh, there's also what's interesting is that it's not just, you know, Israel and Hamas. Um, other states, actors have gotten involved um, in this conflict from the information side online. Uh, we've seen quite a lot of quite a lot of Russian state affiliated accounts that have been weaponizing the current conflict um, to sort of drive their usual, you know, anti-Western, anti-Ukrainian narrative. Mm. Um, so, for example, uh, recently Russian state media, also um, Russian politicians have spread false and unverified claims 
that Ukraine has supplied weapons to Hamas and also that the Gaza hospital destroyed on October 17th was hit by a bomb supplied to Israel by the U.S. Yeah, and that was a particularly interesting one, I suppose, when you looked at um, the different sides and what they were saying about it. The the This was the explosion that um, destroyed the Baptist hospital in, in Gaza City and initially, mm. um, you know, killing hundreds of civilians. But according to um, Israelis, it was done by the Palestinians and but by the Palestinians, it was done by Israelis. But it caused an awful lot of problem for, you know, um, very big news organisations like BBC, like Reuters, who were in themselves it quickly providing um, information that may have been wrong, but um, they were following the lines that were given them from the Israeli state. So how do you, as somebody who is looking at this on a day-to-day basis, um, mine for that truth and find the truth? What do you look to to say, okay, this is relevant, this is also accurate and I am understanding the source and I'm happy with it to go? Where does someone like you start? Well, the the event that you're mentioning, so the blast at the Gaza hospital on October 17th, um, was very, very complicated for a lot of journalists and actually even the number of, you know, hundreds of, of dead, which, which was given by, um, you know, Hamas authorities, that is also being put into question. We're actually not sure if there have been really hundreds of dead. I mean, there are some estimates from um, different media outlets that it might, may have been only, um, you know, 20 to 50 people, which is quite a big difference. And... I think what's what you have to do as a journalist is, unfortunately, you're going to get, you know, um, the information from both sides. And I guess you have to put both in your article mm. um, and I mean, try and balance it out. Um, yeah, I try to. Yeah, pretty much that. Try to balance it out. But it's very, very difficult if you're not on the ground. And even if you're on the ground, it still is very difficult um, to get those exact numbers. Um, I think for the moment, journalists need time. Uh, I know the New York Times uh, published yesterday a visual investigation into into the blast. And even then, in that investigation, they have stated that they still don't know where, you know, that rocket came from, mm. um, how many people have died. So, yeah, it's kind of a difficult question to answer. Yeah, I know. And, and, and I'm sure it's a difficult job to do on a daily, daily basis. As you say, you're bombarded um, with information and videos and audio. So um, it, it must be quite the challenge. And so the, the other thing I wanted to, to ask you was about, um, you mentioned earlier, Twitter and or X as it's called now, depending on what you're calling it. Um, w- were there per- particular platforms um, who have, you know, a better record now at analysing or fact-checking themselves? Or Twitter, I know that when Elon Musk came in, lost a lot of, the, of its workforce who, who looked at that on a day-to-day basis. So can you just take us through who might be doing a better job at that type of um sifting out of, of, of the obviously mis- disinformation that, that's been put out. Yeah, so absolutely. Uh, as you mentioned, the big issue with X is that when Elon Musk came over, uh, um, he basically fired most of the content moderation teams. He's also reinstated a lot of accounts 
that are known to spread conspiracy theories. He's also amplified these accounts. Um, and what we've been seeing a lot on X uh, is that the mis and disinformation is primarily shared by blue tick accounts, which are boosted in people's feeds. And that's what most people uh, see. I mean, I think they realized that real Hamas war that that was a real issue. So they have changed a little bit the way community notes work. So for people that don't know, community notes is a sort of crowdsourcing system of uh, fact-checking and verifying certain viral posts. Mm -hmm. um, the issue with the community notes is that sometimes it can take days uh, for that note to appear on misleading claims. Um, so a lot of people, you know, would have shared that and then moved on. Mm -hmm. And also the other issue that we've seen is some of these community notes can also be misleading. Um, and so answering your question, um, I feel like Meta, for example, is doing a lot better because it has its own fact-checking partnerships mm. set up with journalists and other uh, fact-checking organizations. Um, so... Yeah, I would say Meta is doing a lot better than X or, for example, TikTok. Now, some of the imagery and audios that are coming across um, are just horrendous. Um, what type of um, accounts are we seeing, you know, that are created to propagate this type of information? Like, can you talk us through some of the things we might look out for um, in in kind of, you know, to, to kind of alert you to the fact that this might not just be a genuine article? Uh, absolutely. Well, one example uh, that I covered was uh, fake accounts popping up to spread disinformation on social media, posing as journalists. And uh, there was one account in particular last week, so linked to the Gaza uh, hospital bombing, uh, that was posing as an Al Jazeera journalist saying, um, actually, I, I'm on the ground. It was a, um, a misfired rocket. Uh, from the Palestinian side. Mm. Uh, so that was taken, shared. I, I've seen it shared by American politicians. Um, and I think that the first thing that you should look at is, first of all, when was this account created? So if it was created recently, uh, definitely start, you know, reconsidering whether this is a genuine account. Mm. Another thing that you can do is, you know, take that person's name uh, and Google it along with the media. So, for example, in that case, it was a, a journalist uh, claiming to be called Farida Khan, uh, affiliated to, to Al Jazeera. And in the end, when you tried to look her up, there was absolutely no LinkedIn. There were no other articles published on Al Jazeera. Um, and then also, I mean, you can uh, check out uh, Al Jazeera's official, for example, X account and see if they've published anything. And in that case, they had already published uh, a press release saying that this journalist does not work for us. We do not know who this person is. And also, I would say the last thing that you should also check is um, maybe scroll down uh, the feed, see what this account had posted in the past. And I think what was interesting with this case is that uh, up until two weeks before, that account had only posted about Indian politics and cricket. Right. So all of a sudden now this Farida Khan was posting about, you know, being a journalist in Gaza. So you can definitely look at all of these things and then judge by yourself whether uh, this account is genuine and whether you should um, 
reshare or or like um, the claims that it's posting. Yeah, and 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 maybe just pause and take a moment before you do share any of that content to make sure that it is Absolutely. legitimate because once it's gone it's gone. Um, Sophia thank you so much for taking the time to take us through that today. Um, we're very grateful that was Sophia Katzenkova who is the tech and disinformation journalist with Euronews. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. Up next, as more and more of us work way past retirement age, we'll be asking if it's finally time to retire the or word. Now, you're all very welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. Now, for our final item today, take a little listen to this. If I'd been out till quarter to three, would you lock the door? Will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? That was, of course, the Fabs for unmistakable ode to old age because we're going to talk today a little bit about retirement. It can be a really difficult time for many people to deal with, but there's a generation who are challenging the traditional notion and age that's all around retirement. Here in Ireland, we've seen recently the recruitment age for Angar the Siakana changed to 50 years of age. So the entire concept of age and professionalism has changed, really. So we wanted to take a look at what that's all about uh, today. So I'm joined now by someone who's already had one very successful career, but is doing much, much more now. It's Michael Skapinka, who's the Financial Times contributing editor. He's also a counsellor specialising in work and career issues, and he's written books about this subject. He has an education programme, which he runs. So, Michael, you're very welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. Hello, Mandy. Nice to be here. On the line also, I have Louisa Meehan, who is a workplace expert and managing director of Woodview HRM. Louisa, welcome to Taking Stock. Hi, thanks. Thanks, Mandy. Delighted to be here. Now, we're all here today because, Michael, recently you wrote a piece about this issue of retirement, which kicked off really about your own experience um, and the word itself, retirement, striking a particular chord with you. So maybe we'll be kick off with that. Well, uh, Mandy, what happened was uh, I'd been, uh, as you say, I've been a journalist, a staff journalist on the Financial Times for 34 years, and uh, all good things come to an end, and that came to an end. And uh, uh, when it was coming to an end, uh, people started saying to me, uh, what are you going to do in your retirement? And I really didn't like that word because Mm. uh, I really don't feel old. You know, of the baby boomer generation, we just don't get old. And um, I didn't want to retire. I had some other ideas. And in fact, uh, a couple of years before this happened, I had started uh, training as a counsellor. When the time came to actually go, uh, the Financial Times actually said they wanted to keep me in various capacities. They wanted me to carry on writing. They wanted me to carry on teaching in an executive education business that the Financial Times had. So I've now got a three-part life, really, as a, a writer as a leadership educator, and uh, as I mentioned, as a counsellor. And uh, because of my experience, I decided to specialise in career issues, career counselling, uh, including people who were in the same position as me, facing what used to be called retirement and don't really like the idea. Yeah, and and Michael, are you seeing that more with your peers, people who you would have worked with over the years, that they're doing something similar to you? Because you're staying within your own profession. You obviously planned really well. Your um, employers obviously value your contribution and your experience. Have you seen that kind of being applied to, to many more people than you? Yes, I have, both personally and I think... Um, you can see this in uh, 
you know, the work figures for, for, for many, many Western European, North American countries, uh, the number of people who are, are still working when they're over 65 is rising. And of course, it's going to be necessary because um, Western Europe, North America, but also countries like China and Japan, they're aging societies and they're not going to have enough young people to fill all those positions. Mm. Now, Luisa, I'm going to bring you in here. This is an area that obviously comes across your desk quite a lot. How do you see the concept itself of retirement changing from the way we would have traditionally thought about it in the past? I think it's quite interesting just listening to Michael talking about it and, and the introduction there, you know, one thing struck me, which I haven't thought of before, which is, you know, certainly from an Irish and a, and a UK um, perspective, individuals like farmers, you know, historically have worked until they don't work anymore, basically. So there isn't retirement. But I think in the corporate world and the manufacturing world, in industry, etc., uh, retirement was 65 for a very, very, very long time. And, you know, you so you, you, you know, you grew up, you got educated. If you were lucky, you went and did some form of third level education. You entered your workforce sometime between your late teens and early 20s. And there you stayed until you were 65 and then you retired. And that was kind of set in stone. And that is not the case anymore. Um, people are much more transactional, I suppose, with their careers. And people are looking for something that's called employability. So they don't want the 40-year career necessarily. Some people may, but the majority don't. What they want is the ability to have skills that are marketable and that can transition from one career or from one job to the next. And age, for some people, plays a very big part in that. But for an awful lot more people, it plays less of a role than it used to. And it is about staying current um, and relevant with the work that you're doing. Um, and I've worked with so many people who are older and where they're bringing that skill that experience that you can only get through experience with them in a valuable way that can be an enormous asset to people who maybe have less experience in that particular field. And I think it is about using the experience in a way that, that suits the, the person, um, whatever their stage in life, and also benefits the organisation. That's a really good point, Louisa. And Michael, you know, just to go back to the attitudes that some of us would have had entering the workforce or growing up. I mean, traditionally, we would have all hoped to get a, a good, steady job. And the ambition of our parents would have been that you stay in that job, that you get a good pension and that you stay there until, you know, you retire. But that whole landscape, as Louisa said, has has changed. It's now about experience. Do you think that there's a um, challenge for some people to try and understand that they have value beyond an age, that they can bring experience? I'm a little bit obsessed with this issue at the moment because I see so many people trying to recruit for for individuals and finding it very hard. It's a very tight marketplace here now. But sometimes it's very hard to convince older people to go, yeah, you can actually translate your skills to, to something else. Yes, I, I think it's a challenge on both sides. I think uh, you're quite right, Mandy. It's a challenge for people who've reached what used to be thought retirement age to say to them, look, you, you still have a lot to contribute. I think on the other side, though, I still think there is this corporate attitude that older people really are not what you want. Uh, for one thing, when you stay in an organization, you stay in a job for a long time, if you're lucky enough to do that, you end up being quite expensive. You end up your salaries increased over the years. I don't think we've seen enough companies thinking about what they're going to do with their older employees. And um, there are various ways in which this could be handled. You know, people could 
be retained in some fashion as I have been. I mean, this is an entirely freelance arrangement I have now with my employer, but it's working for both sides. And I think we've got to remember that although uh, under EU directives, age discrimination is now illegal, um, it's, I think, really the last acceptable form of discrimination is age discrimination. I think the change has got to come both from people thinking, I've still got something to contribute, but also from employers saying, I think you've still got something to contribute. Yeah. Louisa, um, corporate attitudes need to change. Do you see any evidence of them, you know, changing in the way that, that Michael hope ne- or needs so, to happen? It's a, it's a really tricky question because I see them changing and I see them not changing. Mm. It is, it's a double answer, I suppose. Um, you know, where I've seen huge value is, certainly if I look back at my career, I had two amazing mentors when I was in my 20s and early 30s, both of whom were at or past retirement age and still in the workplace. Amazing individuals who, who, who were valued in the corporation that they were in and contributing massively to it. Um, I would also see individuals that I've worked with over the years in, on voluntary boards and in voluntary sectors, hugely contri- contributing, but in a way that makes sense for them. Um, there can be an attitude, though, at the same time, in terms of maybe older people where they become a bit stuck or where the value that they're adding may not be necessarily contemporary or, or something that's of um, that's considered valuable to the organisation. And so I have seen that as well. And I have seen situations with people of all ages, but including those who are, are older, where they've been there too long and they need to move on. And they're actually, you know, I, I don't want to use the word that they're detrimental to the culture, but they're certainly causing more problems than they are causing benefits. Mm. So I think it's about having that sort of flexible approach and looking at things differently. As Michael was saying there about becoming a freelancer. So you have more control over your time. You have more control over your, with the contributions that you're, you're making. And you have more flexibility because I do think our needs change. And doing the traditional 40-hour week for a lot of people who are, and I would say even much younger than 65, it just doesn't suit the lifestyle that they want to lead. And it doesn't give them that opportunity for a quality of life. Mm. So it is about, we have to change the conversation and we have to change it to how are people enabled to provide their skills in a way that gives them a sense of purpose and brings value to the organisation, irrespective of their age. Um, but more value oftentimes when people have more experience. Yeah, OK, I, I, I get what you're saying there. Um, Michael, I want to bring you back in here because, um, you know, we're talking about people who want to stay on and not everybody does. You know, some people would be quite happy to retire and find a different you know, uh, way to, to busy themselves and, and that it's not for everyone. But one of the things that can can affect people when they're leaving or, or getting ready to leave is this loss of maybe status or loss of place because work is a family. It's it's We spend a lot of time every day with the people who work with us and around us, whether you're a freelancer or whether you're embedded in a company. Um, was that something for you that was important, that notion of belonging? Yes, I think those two things are important, Mandy. I think the notion of belonging is important and the notion of status is important. Now, when I wrote this article for Financial Times, there were over 100 comments underneath. And uh, some people said, well, it's all very well for you. You were in a job you enjoyed. You were in a high-profile job. You were in a job where you used your brain rather than your, your hands. 
not everybody can do all the things that you are doing. And I think that's absolutely true. I think um, status is an issue. And I think for a lot of people, when they move on from their main career, there is the question of people saying, so what do you do? Mm. And uh, there's only a sort of certain amount of time you can say, well, I used to do this or that. Uh, you know, not everybody, not everybody feels the way I do. And you've made that point. I think this is a very individual decision. Some people are happy uh, if they can afford it. And obviously, with uh, inflation the way it is now, not everybody can afford it, even if they've got a good pension. Uh, if you can afford it, there are people who have gone for, you know, what we used to call traditional retirement, go off, you know, listen to music, go to art galleries, go for walks. Uh, if you've got grandchildren, look after your grandchildren. I'm not saying everybody has to go the way I've gone. I've just noticed more and more people wanting to do what I've done. Yeah, no, no. it's a, And it's a very interesting, uh, I, I do think it's happening more and more. And I do think there's more of a place in, in corporate, in the corporate world to have more of a discussion about this and plan in a better way, because um, some people might want to stay on in a, in a, a more, as you say, as a kind of slimmed down version of a job that they've done before. Um, Louise, I'm just going to go back to you about that corporate attitudes thing, because that's kind of that's kind of bugging me a little bit, because, you know, we're in in Ireland in a state of like very tight employment. And surely, you know, corporates should be the ones who are trying to reach out to people to see if they're willing and able to stay on to do some of the work that they've done very well in the past. So what advice would you give to someone who's maybe approaching retirement, doesn't see an option, but there might be something within their company that's available to them or in another company to to extend their career? So I think if somebody wants to stay working, there's lots of options available. There really is. And I think probably having the right attitude and approach towards it is the number one step. And having the confidence to say, no, I am of value and I do have more to contribute and I and I do want to be here and I have a voice. And I think that, that confidence, that internal confidence is really, really important rather than saying, oh, well, you know, I've got my bus pass and, and I'm going to go off now and, and that's that. Um so having that self-assuredness to say, no, this is what I'd like to do. And if you'd like to have me here, that's great. But if you wouldn't, I'm going to go look at my other options. Um, there are lots of corporates out there and lots of organizations that do value and will bring people in with experience, particularly for stuff like if there's a project where you need a particular skill set or uh, if there's a part-time gap in an organization where you need somebody skilled to come in and fulfill a particular role for a period of time, where they're going to struggle, I suppose, is if you're, if you're hiring somebody in to a position that is more about what that person's going to be doing in five to ten years' time, then it does become more complicated if you're hiring somebody in who's yeah, no, sure. at a certain point. Sure, sure. And they may not be there in ten years' time. So where you're looking at the potential down the line, then I can understand why corporates are going, okay, well, I, I see that you're bringing lots to the table today, but actually you're not going to be here in ten years and I need somebody for the long haul. So it's about where there are immediate needs within the organization that the person can fulfill now in, in a valuable way for the individual and for the organization. It can be a really good fit. Mm. And there are certain roles where getting somebody in who's more experienced, um, not that you would discriminate against younger people either, but there, there can be huge value to organizations of doing that. and They will actually seek out people with experience. Yeah, sure. Michael, I'm sorry, time is upon us now. So I'm just going to leave the final word to you on this, if I can. One piece of advice that you'd give someone, you've obviously managed this very successfully yourself. What piece of advice would you leave us with today? Well, I think uh, if I could just sort of very quickly say two, and this applies to whatever stage of your life. Number one, do your best to keep healthy. Exercise really pays dividends. 
And the second is whenever you're working, don't forget about your family and friends, because after work has gone, those are the people who are still going to be there. Very sound advice indeed. So listen, Mike, thanks to both of you for sharing your insights with me today. That was Michael Skipinker, who is a Financial Times contributing editor and author of Inside the Leaders Club. And I was also joined by Louisa Meehan, workplace expert and managing director of Woodview HRM. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock, uh, where we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings. We're always available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app or wherever you get your podcasts from. My thanks, as always, to all of today's guests for their time and their insights. I want to thank the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Jack MacDonald and Stephen Daunt on research and Hugo De Silva on sound. If you have any comments on today's items, you can email us at takingstock at newstalk.com. Stay with us after the break. Anton Savage and guests will be taking you through the Sunday newspapers and much, much more. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.